And good morning. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for June 5th. 2019. A reminder first that this podcast is sponsored by the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a member-led movement for democracy, quality patient care, and a stronger voice in the workplace. You can hear the podcast on the Progressive Radio Network Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And of course, you can find the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and all sorts of other locations. We depend not just on our major sponsors, but on small financial sponsors like many of our listeners. So please go over to workinglife.org and click on the podcast tab. Look for our link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. So I just returned from the great city of San Francisco, which hosted the State Democratic Party Convention. I actually really hate these affairs, to be honest with you. I quickly get what I call conventionitis. You know, that low-level buzz in the hall that eats away at your brain almost imperceptibly, the trudging around from meeting to meeting, and of course, the endless alcohol, free food, and partying. Well, okay, maybe two out of three on that list count as bad. Maybe the partying and the free food and the endless alcohol, I guess, You can get by on that and suffer through that. On the substance, Kimberly Ellis, who has been on the podcast several times and was the progressive candidate for the chair of the Democratic Party, lost in her bid to win that seat. You may recall, and you can search this in our archive for the background, just look for Kimberly Ellis, that she ran the last time around and had the election, in my humble opinion, stolen from her, or at least there were very dodgy things that happened. And she lost it to a guy named Eric Bauman, who from the outset, to me, seemed pretty shady. And in fact, quite quickly, he was forced to resign because of allegations of sexual harassment and abusive and hostile management behavior. Well, good riddance to Eric. Kimberly took on this race again, but frankly was handily defeated by Randy Hicks, who was the political director for the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor under Maria Elena Durazo, who was a terrific labor leader until she ran for the state Senate. And she won that seat, and then Hicks succeeded her. So I was all in for Kimberly, but it's hard if you are a labor person to feel bad about Hicks who may not be as progressive as people might want, but will have in mind workers' rights. But on the program today, I'm kicking off, throwing at you over the next few weeks, the various pitches made to the delegates by most of the Democratic Party's presidential candidates. A reminder, California is going to play a much bigger role in the nominating process than in past years and could conceivably be the ultimate decider because it has the largest pool of delegates at stake, 495. Now, most years, California's primary was in June or generally just quite late in the nomination process, and the nomination fight was usually over by the time Californians voted. In 2020, though, it's been moved earlier to March, March 3rd. And in fact, Californians will actually be able to start voting via mail around the time voters caucus in Iowa. So by the time the primary day rolls around, that's again on March 3rd in California, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada will have already weighed in. And depending on the results in those earlier states, if one candidate gets ahead of steam coming into California she or he might come away with a big enough slice of the California delegates to simply have enough of a cushion through the rest of the voting to win the nomination. Or not. We just don't know. Now, I recorded most of the speeches of the presidential candidates, which were all about seven minutes long, the maximum that each was allowed. And today, I'm featuring Elizabeth Warren, who, in my opinion, gave the sharpest, most focused, clear policy and philosophical speech of them all. Hello, California Democrats! 
here because in 2020, we have a job to do. Beat Donald Trump. But beating Trump is not enough. We need to win up and down the ticket everywhere. And to do that, we need to show what it means to be a Democrat. I'm Elizabeth Warren. I'm running for President of the United States, and I got a plan to win. For decades, the entire structure of our system has favored the rich and the powerful. Pick any issue you care about, and it is painfully obvious. Tax loopholes favor the richest people and the biggest corporations. Environmental regulations benefit drillers and polluters. The racial wealth gap holds back families generation after generation. The list goes on. Gun violence, health care, housing costs are piling up around us. These are enormous problems, but they are all connected to one thing power that is concentrated in the hands of the wealthy and well-connected who help themselves at the expense of everyone else. And some Democrats in Washington believe the only changes we can get are tweaks and nudges. If they dream at all, they dream small. Some say if we all just calm down, the Republicans will come to their senses. But our country is in a time of crisis. The time for small ideas is over. Big problems call for big solutions. If we're going to save our democracy, build an inclusive economy, clean up the corruption in, walls, in Washington, we need big structural change. And yes, I have a plan for that. <laughs> you ready? We'll pass the biggest anti-corruption plan since Watergate. We will end lobbying as we know it. And we will make everyone who runs for federal office post their tax returns online. We will break up big ag. We will break up big banks. We will break up big tech. We will make it easier for workers to join a union. And yes, we will pass a wealth tax. That's two cents on the dollar for people with fortunes worth more than $50 million. That is the top one-tenth of one percent. They can afford two cents. And what will we do with that money? Well, here are just a few plans for that. Universal child care for every baby age zero to five. Universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old in this country. We'll make public college free and we'll put $50 billion into our historically black colleges and universities. will cancel student loan debt for 95% of the people carrying it. When I lead this Democratic Party, we will not be a party that nibbles around the edges. Our Democratic Party will be a party of bold, structural change. But understand this, bold, structural change doesn't happen on its own. We dream big and fight hard. Because the rich and the powerful, they aren't giving up anything without a fight. I grew up out in Oklahoma, 
in a paycheck-to-paycheck family. My daddy ended up as a janitor, but his baby daughter got the chance to become a public school teacher. Can we hear it for our public school teachers? Now, if any of you have never met a public school teacher, know this about us. We aren't afraid and we don't give up. Millions of grassroots Democrats aren't afraid. Millions of grassroots Democrats are ready to fight. But when it gets hard, there's a lot on the line. Too many powerful people in our party say, settle down, back up, nothing to be angry about. Wait for change until the privileged and the powerful are comfortable with those changes. Well, here's the thing. When a candidate tells you about all the things that aren't possible, about how political calculations come first, about how you should settle for little bits and pieces instead of real change. They're telling you something important. They are telling you they will not fight for you. Not me. I'm here to fight. When I leave the Democratic Party, we will be a party of moral clarity, a party of courage, a party with backbone, a party that says we're the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. So yes, we can afford Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. A party that declares we are, have been, and always will be a nation of immigrants and that immigration is our strength. A party that believes no one is above the law, not even the President of the United States. So if you think we need to be a party of big plans to make this country work for everyone, a party that has the courage to fight for those plans, then join me. Text the word CHANGE to 24477. Help us organize, volunteer, dream big, fight hard. Let's win! More than two years ago, Tafari Gebre stopped by to chat. Tafari is the executive vice president of the AFL-CIO, the first immigrant, political refugee, black man, and local labor council leader who was elected as a national officer of the AFL-CIO. His election to the high post was a watershed, and I thought to have him back on the program for two reasons. First, to talk about the uprisings throughout the nation and also to talk about trade and tariffs and the way in which trade and tariffs are often used to target people of color and working people generally. Second, something unsettling has happened inside the AFL-CIO. Out of the blue, Tafari was suspended from his post in April by President Richard Trumka for submitting, it turns out mistakenly, a receipt for $117 from a Miami strip club. Tafari immediately stepped forward to say the receipt was mistakenly submitted and withdrew the request from reimbursement. But he also appealed to the executive council of the AFL-CIO, arguing that President Trumpka did not have the authority to suspend another officer. The suspension was subsequently lifted after a subcommittee reviewed the issue. Now, I did a double take when I read about the affair, and it frankly smelled of something deeper about internal politics, a way to smear someone who might be rubbing people the wrong way on important debates. Suspending someone over $117 before knowing the full facts 
There has to be zero precedent for such an action inside labor, not just at the AFL-CIO, but in any union. I can say with virtual certainty that number one, 98% of the people working in unions are honest, and second, a whole lot more money gets spent on dinners and other things, not to mention huge salaries that make $117 look like a pittance. Now, Teferi would be the first to say that $117 isn't zero and inconsequential, and every dollar spent is a dollar that came from workers' dues, but I'd be more convinced that $117 was the real issue if it was part of a publicly declared drive at the AFL-CIO and every union to make sure that every single expense is legitimate, and there is no such effort. It could have been just an honest screw-up by a guy traveling all across the country every day, managing scores of tasks with very little administrative help. And it was probably an honest screw-up. Now, yes, I'm clearly taking Tafari's side largely because there is no one in the labor movement who I know who doesn't hold him in on the highest regard in terms of integrity and honesty. So was it political? Well, you'll hear him explain here on the show, I believe, for the first time publicly. And I looked back to Ferry, and I was surprised that it's been actually two years, just about, since you and I last chatted for the show here. And so much has happened since then. And I want to start with a really positive thing that has been a product and a topic that I've talked a lot about on this podcast, in fact, devoted many episodes to it. And it comes right out of the talk that you gave recently to the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists in Atlanta, Georgia, when you talked about the amazing power of the strike. And I'm referring to the teachers' uprisings all across the country. And I want to ask you if you had the sense that a couple of things that I noticed and see if you agree and what else your thoughts are about this. Number one, incredible coalition building. It wasn't just the teachers walking out, but they walked out along with parents and even superintendents supported many of the uprisings and community leaders. And the second thing that they did really importantly was they challenged the whole Republican ideology, mostly Republican. Unfortunately, there's some Democrats that buy into this as well. But the whole idea that you could cut budgets, cut budgets, cut budgets, and shovel a huge amounts of money at the state level to corporations and rich people, and not essentially destroy the social safety net. So given all that, and particularly your background as a community organizer yourself, coming out of Orange County, California, where you built really successful coalitions, give me a sense of how you see those uprisings? Well, that, that, I think it is, um, uh, for the sake of our country, I think it is one of the best things since I have been aware uh, in this country that I'm, I'm seeing. Um, that is, um, um, uh, I truly believe, Jonathan, that we are in a movement moment. Uh, that the American people are ready to um, not just wait for somebody else to fight their fight, but they are ready to stand up and uh, uh, fight their fight. So, I mean, if you look at the teachers, um, at some point you get into a point of no return. From budget cuts to teacher salaries being slashed and never seeing any raises, um, you're always being asked to pay for not only for your health care and your pension, but in addition to that, to you know, you are expected to supply, you know, school supplies and everything else. And then at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how passionate you are about the profession you're in, uh, you get to a point of no return because there is no return for your labor. Um, uh, so um, that has been, you know, uh, uh, fuming up. And uh, uh, the exciting thing, Jonathan, also is that. Um, it's not a top. It was not a top-down um, uh, uh, action. It was a bottom-up uh, action. It was teachers in the lunchroom who started saying, uh, you, "You know, we gotta do something." And and the good thing is they had good institutions in their unions who jumped in and supported them and protected them and and uh, 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 led them to succeed. But let's not limit this to the teachers. It is, you know, courageous hotel workers 
who decided to take on to the largest hotel chain in the world with one of the most really significant slogans this year, that is, one job is good enough, and took on the, the, the Hyatt machine, the, the hotel chain, and not just took on, but won. You know, it is grocery workers in New England who said enough is enough and walked out and demanded what's right, rightfully theirs, and they got it. And I don't think that's coming from the union bureaucracy. It's coming from rank and file members who are actually saying enough is enough, and this is my union, and I'm going to use the you know the rights I have through my union. And uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what we have as a solution is withholding our, our labor and withholding our ability to produce to, to our employers until our employer is willing to sit down and talk, talk to us. And uh, in every one of these instances. Workers are for the first time seeing wins when they stand up and fight. Mm. And I think that's really, really significant. Now, you made a really, really good point that this was a sp- going back to the teachers' uprising. Certainly in the beginning, it was an uprising from the bottom, and it was the union leaders who caught up with it. And to their credit, they didn't just squelch it. They didn't say, oh, go away. They kind of marshal their forces because you do need leadership in these kinds of mass uprisings. I believe in bottom up, but I also think good leaders know how to funnel that and support it and enhance it. And the thing that I just want to underscore that I think was really important. And, you know, I've been in the labor movement over 30 plus years now, and uh, I love the labor movement, but I think one of the failings that we've had oftentimes is to build those coalitions with the community beyond our personal issues about, which are important, about wages and benefits and retirement. And in this teacher uprising, just state after state, especially mostly in so-called red states, conservative states, they really made it not just about wages, they made it about the kids and about education funding and the community. And I thought that was really inspiring. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and some of us have known this for a long time. Uh, uh, that, you, you know, Randy Weingarten, the president of the Teachers Union, uh, says this profound thing all the time, that is, you know, community is the new density for the labor movement. And that was really true in, in example after example, as you mentioned. It was the students, it was the parents, it was, you know, even administrators at the school who stood with the teachers, um, uh, to, you, you know, to, to, to fight back. Uh, but it's also... Um, uh, important to point out that what led us to this was uh, an austerity uh, 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 regime that wanted to starve public services, that wanted to starve our school systems, that, says, that said government is bad, that said uh, you know the public good is bad and everybody should be scrambling for themselves. That is, this is a clear signal that model failed. That model failed, and, 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 and when unions line up with the communities, and when communities and unions become actually one and the same, uh, the power we have is bigger than a Supreme Court, bigger than any government, bigger than any corporation. But in order for that to happen, uh, also, you know, I don't mean to criticize my own, my, my own here, we have to be aware at the top level of the labor movement that that is where our resources need to be invested on, is in building a bigger and better and deeper relationship with the, with, with communities, and especially with communities of color and the disaffected communities and with the, with the environmental community, with everybody else to create a front that, is gonna, that, that, that will be unstoppable. And I see that in front of me. And uh, I see that, 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 that we're in an age that we can actually... Um, uh, you know, organized labor and organized communities can fight back and win against uh, organized capital. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other big issues in just generally speaking is the question of trade. And there's two elements of that. One is what we like to call NAFTA 2.0. Now, I didn't like NAFTA 1.0 or all the <laughs> or all the other trade agreements that followed. And I recently had a chance to speak to Catherine Feingold about both NAFTA and some of the other issues, uh, the terrible murders that are happening 
in Colombia in the wake of that free trade agreement that was signed. And of course, we know that the enforcement of the labor rights provisions has never happened and that working people, especially people of color, are suffering because of these trade deals and because of the tariffs, as you pointed out in an email to me as we discussed what we wanted to talk about in the show, these tariffs especially are targeting people of color. So talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, two separate uh, 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 things. Um, uh, trade uh, um, uh, on, on its own and the Trump racist tariff strategy is another thing. Um, you, you know, uh, we disagree with the chamber. We disagree with uh, the the. the Free market crowd um, uh, that any kind of free trade is a good trade. Uh, we disagree with that. So now let me try to, in a very not very eloquent way, to describe this. Actually, I did this talk in, in the, at the uh, at, at, at Columbia University, uh, uh, trying to address this a couple of years ago uh, when um, um, when TPP was uh, was upon us. And uh, CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, is a great microcosm of actually free trade agreements that are, you know, conceived by corporations, written in the back room, uh, and executed by corporations in cahoots with Democrats and Republicans in government, um, uh, create the social ills that we see in our country and we see overseas. Now... I know that I know we probably don't have that much time in here, but if you look at CAFTA, the, the, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, with, which is with four countries in Central America, out of out of those four, three of them are the source of a lot of the migration that's happening of refugees coming into the United States that the president complains about at the border, right? So, as a voter. As a taxpayer, I have to take responsibility with what my government does if I feel like I live in democracy. I just can't point a finger to uh, Barack Obama or George Bush or uh, or Donald Trump and say the president did this and Cong- Congress, Congress does that because I have the responsibility of changing those people if they don't do the right thing. Now, I took a delegation to Honduras a couple of years ago. And what we saw, Jonathan, was heartbreaking. Small farmers who used to grow their own beans, who used to grow their own fruits and bring it to the market and happily used to live there. After CAFTA happened, their land was seized by multinationals. And now they are growing oil seeds on on those places. And all these small farmers were pushed into industrial parks in the city zones to manufacture T-shirts and everything else that jobs that left from here for a very substandard wages that they can't sustain themselves in those big cities to do, doing that. And that pushes them to actually find things to do and find things to eat. That creates this criminal element in those, in those countries with gangs that terrorizes these people, which is a direct result of actually our trade agreements. And when, when all these people are now looking for a job, looking for survival, and risk their lives, jump on a train, travel for 1,700 miles, and make it on our border, then we treat them as dirt. And even during the Obama administration, I remember this vividly watching it on TV, buses rolling through California with, with, with little children from... Honduras in the, 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 in the Nicaragua and those countries uh, passing by, Americans lining on the street and throwing tomatoes and rocks at them. That's not who we are. And then a demagogue gets elected. And now he's using tariffs for racist purposes to say Mexicans are not allowed to come into our country and brown people are not com- uh, allowed to come into this country. And I don't think that's a social, just a social issue. That's a workers' issue. As long as these people are not respected at the workplace, as long as these people don't have their rights at, the, at the, their workplace, even once they, they once they make it here, the rest of us don't have 
the ability to protect our rights at the workplace. So it is a selfish thing for the labor movement and to stand up, call it for what it is. And that is, this is Donald Trump's racist attitudes, racist behavior that is reflecting itself through tariffs. And to underscore what you said about CAFTA and immigration and migration, I mean, people don't want to leave their communities by the nature of it. Most people want to stay where their families are, where their friends are, where they've grown up. They stay within a few miles. They don't want to uproot their whole family to go somewhere else. It's because of necessity, either political violence or economic violence. And this goes really back. You mentioned Kafton. That was a great explanation discussion. It really goes back to NAFTA, which was really the basis of all these so-called free trade agreements since then. And it was the same thing that happened to Mexicans there. And it was predictable. All of the people who worked, and especially the people at the AFL-CIO, people who worked against that trade agreement, pointed out that if it passed, it would impoverish millions of Mexican, especially farmers, and they would basically have no choice to but to get go off their land, be, they were thrown off their land, and to find work elsewhere. And what did they do? They came to the U.S. because they were essentially economic refugees. Yep, off our own policy. That's correct, exactly, exactly. Uh, off our own policy. And, and the, the Mexico example was really a good example. I mean, that, you know, there, there are some books actually published on that. People want to uh, 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 read them. One of them, Adelante, it was really written by Mexican immigrants themselves who curse, you know, the Fox administration for signing that free trade agreement uh, that, that, you know, they lost their farm land just because multinational uh, uh, farm corporations uh, uh, went and dumped corn until they can't compete at all, and they had to sell their farm lines for mittens to multinationals, and they had to move here to be construction workers and housekeepers and cutting grasses for, uh, uh, in, you know, for people. But like you said, I'm an immigrant myself. No one wants to uproot from where they grow up from. And not only are you an uh, immigrant, you're a political refugee, so you've experienced the reality of being forced to leave your home because you had no choice. Yep. And, 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 and faced death three, four times in my life to actually, to, to actually do that. And that should be a great thing for our country, Jonathan, because when people come through this country going through those kind of hoops, especially refugees, they are the most grateful people to this country. These are the most driven people who actually accomplish great things for their, in, their, in, their adapted, in their adapted country. I'm talking about the Madeleine Albrights of the, 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 the world. I'm talking about the Albert Einsteins of the world. When we shut our doors to refugees, we are saying that we're not welcoming the smartest and brightest and most driven people in the world who could actually risk their life looking for freedom in this country. That, that's, that's, that's what we're doing. What makes us exceptional, Jonathan, about that in the United States is that the most driven people want to be part of it. And that is the source of our energy that we have. And that worries me that we're shutting that door down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the last topic I wanted to raise with you, it, and I want to approach it in some way through the back door, which is going back to your speech again to the CBTU recently. In, and in your speech, you talked about and you questioned in some way the rhetoric of the labor movement, I think, in terms of where we're spending our resources and our energy. And I wonder if that had something to do, whether you're speaking up about that internally, whether that had something to do with this, what I was kind of frankly shocked, this $117, and I want to use the word very carefully, scandal, that $117, some receipt came from you that was um, either misplaced or missubmitted. And as a result, it seems like the boot came down on you there was a heavy attack against you, and it seems so out of place that the first thing, my reaction, I think many people's reaction was, this had to be political, that this attack against you, this criticism had to be political because it was so out of bounds. It was so disproportionate. I've been around the labor movement a long time, and 
what, when you see that kind of reaction, you have to say there's something deeper. And it, is it about the criticism that you've been raising internally? Uh, I think so. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to stick to, um, I'm going to say what I believe is good for working people in this country. Um, uh, I've been passionately devoted my life to improving life, lives of workers in this country. I've, I've been passionately uh, engaged in trying to build a movement, not just a campaign, but a movement. Uh, uh, for working people in in this country, so um, uh, when I first got elected in 2013 at the AFL-CIO um, uh, convention in Los Angeles, the theme of our convention was actually building a labor movement rooted in our community, working in partnership with our community to um, deliver results not only for our members for all, all workers. Um, I got elected with an agenda of a labor movement that is willing to speak up for anybody who gets up in the morning and go to work. It doesn't matter if you have a union card or not. I got elected at a convention in a labor movement that was committed in doubling down to fight for the 11 million undocumented workers who go to work every day, just like I do, like just like you do, whose kids go to school with our kids, who go to church with us, who go to mosques and synagogues, synagogues with, the, with the rest of us. They just did not have a piece of paper that says they are allowed to work in, to work in this country. I was excited to go work for that labor movement. And because I thought selfishly, even for the labor movement, that is the way forward for the, for, for the labor movement. Same thing at that, at, at that convention. We eloquently spoke about the danger of mass incarceration in this country, not only to people, the communities of color, but to, for the labor movement itself, because six out of 10 African-Americans in this country say if they get the opportunity, they would like to join a union. The problem is they're locked up in jail. And when they come up, they have to check a box. And they, a lot of times they can't join us. And we took on, on that as our fight, just for the survival of our movement and for the survival of the, the, the unions, we had to pick up on those fights. Honestly, I'm not talking about all unions here. I'm talking about my own institution. After Donald Trump got elected, we became afraid of those issues. And, and, and I feel like we have made a commitment a commitment for a segment of society that needed a voice, that is the immigrant, that's the people of color, that's the emerging majority in this country, that we're going to stand alongside you and fight with you. And I'm asserting myself again, saying that is the promise we made, and I'm going to try to keep us accountable to the promise we made and to stick to the promise that we have made to these communities. And what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that I'm reading into this a little bit that after Trump was elected, there was a lot of analysis that somehow these war this was an alienation of white people, especially in states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. And am I understanding you correctly to say that you feel that in inside the labor movement, that became such a heavy focus that what was forgotten was the things that you just talked about, mass incarceration, the attacks against people of color and related issues that you committed yourself when you were first elected? Yes. Um, I, again, I'm talking about the, 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 the institutions that I work at. Uh, uh, I think there are some individual unions who are doing a fantastic job of actually sticking with, the, with, the, you know, with, with, that, with that agenda. And that's why you're seeing the strikes and all that stuff. Um, um, uh, but uh, our budget where I work at, does not reflect our uh, does not reflect those priorities. The rhetoric may may be there, but our budget doesn't reflect that. Our priorities does, that, that, that doesn't reflect that. And the thing is, um, uh, I refuse to believe white working class people voted for Donald Trump, even those who did voted for Donald Trump because they were upset that the labor movement cared about incarcerated people. I refuse to believe they did. They, they voted for Donald Trump because the labor movement actually decided to fight alongside immigrants for immigration reform. 
I refuse to believe that. I think they voted for Donald Trump because the labor movement had told a lot of our members in this crucial states that that as we talked previous that in the in the, in the previous uh, your previous question, free trade has not been free to them. It has cost them their jobs. Uh, we have told them that the rules are rigged against us. Democrats or Republicans, it, it, you know, the rules have been rigged against working people. Unfortunately, there weren't a Democratic candidate who was telling him that I'm going to unrig the system for you. Instead, we had a demagogue in the form of Donald Trump who said he was going to unrig the system for them, even though he was going to unrig, unrig it, the, the, you know, the other way around. And they may have fall, fall for that. But that should not be compensated on on the back of the most vulnerable people, and that's people of color, the most loyal, loyal members of the labor movement should not be the sacrifice, should not be the ones that we pay the price with to attract white working class people. And you're raising this internally within the AFL-CIO, especially as you just said, as it relates to how the budget reflects those priorities. And I'm guessing that you're getting pushback on that. Um, uh, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't say that it, 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 it you know, it may not be, um, uh, uh, overt, but, uh, it, it, you know, um, let, let, let me say this. I don't have the space I used to have before Donald Trump got elected to actually work on those things. Hmm. Hmm. And do you think then again, to circle back, this is why I thought that there was something deeper that was going on here when I read and saw about this $117 reimbursement caused this big kerfuffle and this big outrage. It had to be something else. And that's why your explanation about what you're trying to diplomatically describe is some difference of opinion, significant political difference of opinion about the direction of the AFL-CIO, which is reflected in where the money's spent. Yep. I would, I'll, 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 I'll just uh, uh, say yes to that. But, but let me talk about the hundred seventeen dollars a little bit. And this is, the, this is the only thing I'm, I'm, I'm going to say about it. I don't, I, I'm not minimizing hundred seventeen dollars is not a lot of money, right? But the most hurtful thing about that whole thing, Jonathan, is I have never anywhere I work at, everywhere I work at, from liquor store to a parking lot to everywhere else. I have never taken a single penny from where I work at. And I would not submit a receipt that's not due to me. I would never, ever, ever do that. And if it, it, the fact that anyone believes that's what, was, that, that, that's what I, was, I, I was trying to do is laughable. That's one thing. And the other thing is you have been around the labor movement. We don't go public. We don't do this kind of egregious things over this kind of things. It, it, this, this kind of thing. So I would I would leave it to the consciousness of the people who did that uh, to you know to, to to find out to find out for for, for themselves. But there there are bigger fish to fry. I worry that a movement is passing in front of us. A movement is passing across 16th Street, and we're not going walking outside to go join it. That is a bigger deal for me. Last but not least, my favorite topic, taxes. One of the things each candidate who is running for president on the Democratic side is pitching either in broad strokes or sometimes with specific proposals is what they would do about taxes. Over the past few weeks, a slew of proposals have actually been unveiled, some for candidates and some just in Congress from other politicians. Today, I wanted to take a brief look at five proposals that significantly expand existing tax credits or create new ones to benefit low and moderate income people. And this wouldn't shock you, all these proposals are coming from Democrats because Republicans are all in the business of only helping the very wealthy and corporations. 
Now, of course, as I've said on the show, some Democrats have done that as well. But right now, the divide is very clear. Republicans in the past tax bill helped the very wealthy and big corporations and did very little, almost nothing, and in fact hurt low and moderate income people. Let me quickly tick these proposals off. The Cost of Living Refund Act would expand the earned income tax credit, and it's being led by Senator Sherrod Brown and Representative Ro Khanna, who is a surrogate and supporter of Bernie Sanders. The American Family Act would expand the child tax credit, and that's a collaboration between Senator Michael Bennett, who, as many of you know, is running for president, and Representative Rosa DeLauro in the House. The Working Families Tax Relief Act, also from Sherrod Brown, makes less dramatic changes to both the EITC, meaning the Earned Income Tax Credit, and the Child Tax Credit, and rolls them all into one bill. The Lift the Middle Class Act, that's the name of the whole bill, comes from presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris, and it would actually be a new credit, as would something called the RISE Credit from Cory Booker, who, of course, is also in the presidential race. Booker's proposal would actually replace the current EITC, while Harris's LIFT Act would coexist along the EITC. Got all that? Well, to work through some of these on the big picture level, I want to bring in Jessica Scheider, who is a federal tax policy fellow at my favorite place, the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy. And one of the great things about this report, Jessica, is you folks lay out both in the bar graph and your explanation the fundamental difference between this approach, meaning tax credit approach, and the approach of the Republican tax cut bill, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And the first thing I saw was the great bar graph, which lays out the five proposals that you've looked into in this study and shows, you know, the little sliver, sliver, sliver of money that might go to the richest taxpayers in the country versus the Republican sham jobs act bill, which is what my, I call it, which has this huge, huge bar of all the money that went to the richest in the country in terms of tax cuts. And then there's a second philosophical point that you make, maybe not explicitly, but kind of throughout the uh, analysis, it's a major departure in philosophy because the Republican tax cut bill, not just this one, but going back actually to the Reagan tax cuts, the basic philosophy was the so-called supply-side economics, which focused on giving tax cuts to the wealthiest under the theory, which has been proven to be totally wrong. And you guys have looked at this, certainly in terms of the recent tax cuts, the theory being that you shovel all this money to the richest people in the country and, oh, they're going to go out and spend it and they're going to use it and that'll help everybody else, right? Is that a fair assessment? Um, yes, and so it, it is important to keep in mind, right? This isn't um, certainly that the whole supply side economics, uh, that whole set of arguments is not, you know, limited to the Reagan era, right? When you look at one of my favorite recent charts from ITAP is the the chart that we did that shows uh, 65% of federal tax cuts um, from 2001 through 2018, so including the TCJ actually went to the richest 20%, right? So this isn't just a, it's not just the TCJA that kind of redistributed wealth upwards. It's kind of a series of tax cuts now that kind of has allowed uh, income and, and, and wealth to kind of drift upwards, right? Um, but you're right. I love, and, folk, and folks who've, you know, given us feedback, love this kind of figure, one from the report, where we kind of compare both the relative magnitudes of these five proposals that we're focusing on uh, in this report uh, with the TCJA, um, but then also, yeah, as you pointed out, the distributional impacts um, and how just disproportionately the TCJA is giving money away to the kind of richest 20%, um, as well as foreign investors, right? None of the other five proposals we looked at kind of had that leakage to foreign investors in the TCJA. That was a result of kind of the corporate changes that were made, um, but that, you know, these are all plans that are are much smaller. And then if you look at the amount going though to the, you know, the work, you know, bottom 60% of the bottom 20%, there's just so much more there. Um, and so it's definitely a deliberate, you know, policy choice that these, you know, various folks who've proposed these plans are making that, you know, this should be our priority. Working people, working families, 
you know, fighting poverty. These are our priorities as compared to the TCJA. And when you keep referring to the TCJA, I want to remind my listeners that Jessica is referring to the Trump tax cuts, the bill that passed in 2017 that shoveled this huge amount of money to the very uh, richest in the country. And in the study, the first sentence that leads off this comparison says federal lawmakers have recently announced and you go on. And so I want to underscore that, and this is a political policy issue. These are all proposals, the five proposals that you're presenting, that you're analyzing, all proposals from Democrats. And you're Reference previously to the amount of money that's been shoveled to the wealthiest over the past 20 years is an important one because, as my listeners know, I've been no fan of how many Democrats have handled tax cuts in the past. And if you go back actually to the Reagan tax cuts, all of those tax cuts leading up for, I guess, now almost 40 years, too many Democrats have supported those tax cuts under the theory that we have to help big business. And in fact, some of them were supply siders. But here you have, in some way, a political document. Let's be very clear. These are all being presented by Democrats contrasting themselves with the Republican Party. Um, indeed. These are all uh, plans from from uh, Democrats. Um, and it's a very, you know, it's an exciting time to be working on tax policy, right, which isn't necessarily always true. You know, it's not just that there's one proposal out there on the Democratic side that seems to be kind of this sexy new idea. This is, I mean, all five of these proposals go in very different directions, right? Um, we have those that kind of reform the EITC or expand it, those that deal with the CTC, or sorry, let's go the earned income tax credit is the EITC, uh, expand the uh, child tax credit or, or reform it in some way, make it more generous, make it more um, eligible, um, as well as two proposals that are for completely new credits, which are both structured very differently. You know, there's, there's an abundance of new ideas here, and that's really exciting, and kind of it's showing kind of the number of directions that you could go in uh, to both, you know, channel more post-tax income to the bottom 60% or the bottom 20%, depending on what your central objective is, um, but then also kind of combat growing inequality. Mm. And really my point about raising the partisan nature, if I can use that term, of these proposals mm -hmm. is that none of them have a chance of passing unless in 2020 the elections deliver a Democratic Congress and someone in the White House, a Democrat presumably, who will sign these. I'm not asking you necessarily to advocate for Democrats here, but I'm just trying to set the context of this, that they are political educational documents that are saying, look, if you put us in power, this is what we will do. Oh, to be clear, no, I, I, com I completely agree. The space... Um to you know, raise revenue from the top, um, and and then increase the incomes of you know um, lower and middle income people um, is definitely there's much more space to do that um, on the Democratic side, without a doubt. I think we've kind of watched you know over the past two weeks this um, kerfuffle over infrastructure, right? You know, Trump promising that there would be uh, you know a proposal to to offset the cost of a two trillion dollar infrastructure package. Um, and then him, as of yesterday, according to Chuck Schumer's comments, you know, not having been able to find the space to actually come up with any off offsets. Clearly, um, you know, there's there's a difference in opinion as to you know what we should be paying for in this country, and and there's little room really to pursue these kind of kind of you know proposals that um, that we lay out in this report. Now, these five major proposals that you look at focus a lot on two areas. One is the earned income tax credit and then the child tax credit. And one thing that has driven me crazy about both of them, and I'm sure you're going to agree with me about this, is the way in which up to now, they force taxpayers, poor people, to jump through all sorts of hoops to prove that they are worthy of these tax credits. And as I understand these proposals, this makes it a little bit easier for them to qualify and also puts more people into the basket of people who qualify for the most money. Sure. Yeah. So there, are, again, these are five very distinct proposals. So it's hard to kind of generalize mm, across all mm -hmm, of them. Yep. But for sure, you see shining through kind of an interest in um, addressing, you know, refundability, right? So I always say, you know, non-refundable credits are kind of like um, coupons, right? You have to spend the money to get the discount, right? Whereas refundable tax credits are more like kind of a gift card, right? 
you there's a specific eval, a value associated with them, and then you can then use that money. You know, with, if you you know that's the check that you get back if if you do get it back. Um, if it hasn't, if you have a tax liability that's smaller than the actual value, and you can then use that either to pay your state and local taxes, um, or you know to to pay for your family's uh, you know necessities. So. Um, it definitely the focus on refundability is much appreciated, and then we see some really interesting expansions. Um, for example, the Rise Credit uh, expands the maximum credit to um, caregivers, those looking after children six and six and younger, as well as those caring for um, you know disabled or elderly dependents. Um, and then also, there's some interesting proposals to kind of expand these credits to. Um, uh, ch- college students as well. So we, there's definitely some innovation here. And you were referring to the rise credit by Senator Cory Booker. Exactly. Now, the point you made before is quite important. Here, as I understand it, these overall the proposals, and again, they're different in in various ways, but on average, what would an American sort of at the bottom rung, not the richest, not the corporations get here? Sure. So uh, absolutely. Across these plans, um, you know, the average household with a working age adult in the bottom 60% of tax units is going to get anywhere from, you know, $990 of benefit under the American Family Act all the way up to um, just over $2,700 for the Lift the Middle Class Act. So this is kind of, they're on on that spectrum. Now, do you have any thought about the advisability of using the tax system and tax credits in this way in terms of giving money to people who really need it? And what I mean is, wouldn't it be easier to just say and pass a guaranteed income bill that would essentially hand people a check and say, here's the money you get no matter what income you have, or at least maybe it's phased over um, many levels because what happens here is again this is almost a situation where people have to constantly prove that they quote unquote deserve it right so i mean there there are a bunch of options on the table um all are kind of um salient to to different extents um you know we have had a hard time so for example the the child tax credit right um advocates and researchers have fought for a long time um to make it fully refundable, right? That's and that's a goal of of multiple use of these proposals, um, so that you know no matter whether you have zero income or five dollars of income or you know I think it goes up you know quite high up the income spectrum um, that you would get the credit and you wouldn't be uh, excluded from it if you're an extremely low income person. Um, and that's definitely really important. You can go that route and just make these, you know, that's essentially the same thing as what you're talking about. Uh, a fully refundable CTC more or less acts as a uh, universal child allowance, right? Um, and there's been actually a lot of new research um, recently looking into kind of what a universal child allowance um, would do for, for fighting poverty, um, which obviously, you know, is higher among among children than the general population. Um, so you could go any number of routes, um, and I, I wouldn't want to take any proposal off the table. And my point about this is that in some way it puts people at a disadvantage who are forced to, number one, file these darn tax returns and figure out where they are in the spectrum and then essentially fight for it as opposed to just putting it out there. It seems like it would be more efficient to do that rather than force people again to jump jump through these barriers and jump through these hoops. It would be more efficient and fairer. So yeah, no, for sure. The the ability to kind of um, know what you're getting into come, come tax season um, uh, definitely, it could be made much more transparent. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, as you well know, there are you know forces in our country that are very much invested in keeping uh, the tax code as complicated as possible. Um, I'm sure you've been watching the uh, kind of saga over the free file program um, recently, um, and the debates that it's launched over kind of the adequate funding of the IRS generally. You know, are we enabling the IRS? to, you know, really, you know, work in the service of its customers, right, the American people. Um, and, you know, could we streamline tax, you know, tax, the tax filing system? Could we make it easier for folks to claim these credits? Absolutely. And again, you can pursue any number of paths to get there. 
but obviously there are, you know, you know, there are those who have interest in kind of making these harder to, to claim for sure. Well, to put it another way, the very richest people, the ones who benefited from the Trump tax cuts, they have legions of accountants and lawyers whose full-time job is to make sure that they get all that money back. So it's not a surprise that when the tax code allows them to do that for political reasons, that they then have the wherewithal and the tools to make sure that they get every dime. And that's just harder for poorer people to do because that in in and of itself can cost money, certainly in terms of time, but also if you have to hire people to do this for you, as opposed to just saying, as you have pointed out already, as we've discussed this, just give people the money. Right. And I think, um, you know, my I, I'll paraphrase my colleague, Steve Wemhoff. He always, uh, you know, when he's talking about the top 1% filing their taxes, you know, he always makes the point, you know, these are not folks sitting around a kitchen table with a calculator, right? These are these are people who do, as you say, have an army of accountants ready to go and to work through kind of, um, you know, what their tax options are, how to, uh, you know, uh, you know, maximize kind of their tax efficiency kind of considerations that most working people just don't have the money or resources to even consider. I I wanted to ask you something that's related to this question. You chose these five uh, tax credit proposals because they were the most obvious or publicized or because they were the best. There are other tax credit proposals out there on the part of Democrats, as I understand it. Correct. So um, obviously, to kind of run our micro simulation model, we do require a good amount of of detail uh, to have been released about a given plan. Um, Four of the five uh, major tax credit proposals that we um, examined in this report um, already have legislative language. Um, The one exception is the RISE credit from Senator Cory Booker. Um, And he we were able to score that last credit just because it's based on um, a credit from the Economic Security Project, um, which it had kind of sufficient, um, you know, documentation around it, and so we were able to include that. But yeah, we definitely, you know, we would love to see, uh, you know, additional proposals um, from from across the field, and we'd be we'd be happy to kind of include them in an updated analysis. And then related to that, although these are not tax credit proposals, there have been a number of proposals. I'm sort of going to ask you this: your opinion of them? You may not have scored them yet. Um, and how they might relate to the tax credit proposals because they might pay for them. And those are the wealth tax proposals, the ones that are actually aimed at taxing wealthiest people in the country. How do those interact in your view in terms of the debate? Sure. So, of course, you know, and a number of these um, proposals that we examined in the report that we were able to examine uh, actually, you know, recommend their own pay-fors. Um, and those range from, you know, you know, a repeal of some of the more regressive portions of the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act or the, the Trump tax bill, um, but then they range all the way to, as, as you pointed out, a wealth tax. Um, and so there's any number of ways, just like just like throughout these proposals, you know, there are, there are great elements in each of them, right, each of these five proposals that we examined. Um, and those are ideas on how to right, spend the money. There are an equally number, uh, equal number of great ideas to kind of either offset the cost or completely pay for for these proposals. Um, And that kind of menu of options is debatably even much wider, right? We have some really great ideas uh, coming to the fore, including a wealth tax, um, you know, interesting uh, proposals for corporate taxes. Obviously, there's always the option to, um, you know, raise the corporate tax rate again, to close corporate loopholes, um, but then also, uh, you know, to to tax... uh, uh, you know, unearned income, uh, like like earned income. I mean, I think there's any number of options on the table. And overall, this would essentially reverse what the Republicans did or begin that process, which is hand more money to the people who really need it versus the tax cuts that the Republicans passed, which gives most of the money to the very wealthy corporations. Yeah, so I think um, you know the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act gave um, a lot of money away at the top, right? And we are presenting you know plans here for kind of how you would you know give money away to you know working people, lower and middle income families. Um, and I think there you know we definitely expect that there would probably be some some offset, um, and ideally that would you know raise taxes um, either on the corporate side or you know, ask, you know, the wealthiest and most fortunate Americans to pay more on the individual side. Um, And, uh, you know, there's any number of options.
That'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Tafari Gabre and Jessica Scheider. And of course, to Elizabeth Warren. You will hear from the other candidates in the coming weeks. Thanks to our audio editor, David Hebden. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Union of Healthcare Workers. Please do subscribe and support this podcast. You can do that by, again, going over to workinglife.org, clicking on the Patreon tab, and supporting us at whatever level you can afford. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.